south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 348, covering the week of March 13th through March 17th, 2023. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab and Facebook pages, and subscribe to our YouTube page. Our YouTube page really is invaluable. You get all kinds of free content, and you can also support the Institute there by clicking on that little super thanks button under the videos. So go on out and do that. Check out our YouTube page. We have our Abbeville U videos, our lectures from summer schools and other conferences, and of course this podcast and other things. So it's a really great resource free of charge to you. You can also, of course, support the Institute by going to abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition. Our gift to you, free of charge, just for giving us that email address. And of course, when you do that, you get on our email list, and that's how we communicate with you. We need that email address because lots of other forms of communication are very hard to do nowadays. So, You will get emails from us. Please do not unsubscribe from that email. Uh, We do try to fundraise that way. Of course, we let you know of all the things that are going on with the Institute. We let you know about our our daily articles. It's a really great way for us to keep in contact with you. While you're at abbevilleinstitute.org, please click click on that support button. When it comes up, donate. It's how we exist. So if you want to if you like our material, if you like our website, our podcasts, our videos, our conferences, all that kind of stuff, please consider a tax-deductible donation to the Institute. It is the only way we stay in business. We don't have any other forms of revenue. That's it. So your donations are essential for us to keep the doors open and keep doing what we do. Also want to remind you that if you're on the email list, you'll get reminders about our upcoming webinars. Now, we should have another one coming up pretty soon. Sometimes we have to do them pretty quickly and let you know. So again, check your email regularly for those type of things. But those are free of charge. If you want to pick up the old ones, you can go to Abbeville Academy. AbbeyvilleAcademy.org, and you can purchase some of the old webinars there when we had to charge for them, but now we're doing them free of charge. So go to AbbeyvilleAcademy.org, and you can get those old webinars. Also, you can get our logo on all kinds of cool stuff if you just click on the shop tab at AbbeyvilleInstitute.org. You can get our mobile app. Just click on the mobile app at the top of the page. You can at our website or search for the Abbeville Institute and in your and your app store and you can get that free of charge. It's the Abbeville Institute on the go. So lots of really cool things that we have. Most of what we do costs nothing. It's free to you unless you want to support the Institute financially. You can take advantage of all the stuff we do and never send a dime. If you want to do something painlessly, you of course can rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. You can let people know you like it, give it a five-star review, go out to YouTube, comment on the videos. That helps boost them up in the algorithm. So there's all kinds of things to do to try to support the Institute painlessly. You can share our material around on social media. That's also a great way to do it. Let people know you're reading it. Let people know you like it. Share the lectures. Do all those things. Because these are uh, this is how we change the narrative in America. All right, well, let's talk about a topic of the day and... You know, tomorrow, as I'm recording this, is John C. Calhoun's birthday. And I want to address that with one of the pieces we had this week on the Confederate Constitution. John C. Calhoun is often called, you know, the father of the Confederacy, which, of course, is kind of strange because he'd been dead a decade by the time South Carolina secedes in 1860. Uh, He was in no part tied into the Confederacy in any way. Now, of course, 
people will say, well, Calhoun was uh, you know, this, this uh, progenitor of this idea of you know, secession and decentralization. And he was, he was certainly in favor of these things. What people don't realize is that the secessionists in South Carolina really didn't like John C. Calhoun. They didn't think he was committed to it. John C. Calhoun was a committed, a committed I'm sorry, unionist throughout his entire life. He believed that nullification was the only way to save the Union. Now, he did think that secession was possible. He didn't think it was illegal, nor did most Americans for a long period of time think it was illegal or treason. That only came about because, well, Lincoln wanted to keep his revenue. And, of course, uh, the idea that letting the South go would financially harm the United States in the way that the South would then be the free trade zone in North America and all of the products that were going into New York ports or Philadelphia ports or Boston ports would go into the South. And so Lincoln would lose a tremendous amount of revenue, not because Southerners were paying more for manufactured goods, but because they would be a free trade harbor in North America that would hurt, of course, Northern finances. So and it's amazing how northern abolitionists, which had been secessionists for decades, two decades, became committed unionists during the war. All this is just, of course, really funny stuff in a way uh, because it blows apart the narrative of you know the South, slavery, all these kind of things. But regardless, Calhoun is often seen as this you know, progenitor of the Confederacy. When Calhoun saw secession as possible, he in fact warned against it. Right after the war with Mexico, these are the Calhoun resolutions. He said, if you don't do this, we're going to see secession because he knew it was happening. He didn't want that. Calhoun always tried to save the Union. He thought the Union was valuable for the South. Uh, and, of course, others did not see that way. In fact, Calhoun wasn't just despised by the secessionists in South Carolina. Uh, before, of course, he died, he was also not really trusted by the old Republicans because they didn't, he was, didn't think he was committed enough to the old Jeffersonian principles. So Calhoun is a very interesting character. Now, all that said, Calhoun certainly had some pretty valuable things to say about American society and government, more American government than anything. He was really the most important political philosopher of the 19th century in the United States. He had an original idea in the concurrent majority. An idea, by the way, that does have some merit in how we could handle some of the out-of-control problems in the general government. The concurrent majority meant that simply you had to have supermajorities to pass just about any legislation. Well, if that's the case, then only the most important things that don't hurt one section or group of people are going to get passed through the Congress. You see? You allow a section or a group of people or a state, essentially people of the state, to veto unconstitutional legislation. It's not a bad idea. Now, people could use this nefariously. They could just become no's and just veto just about everything. But Calhoun reasoned that that wouldn't happen. If something was really beneficial for the whole, it would go through. Essentially, what you do is you create supermajorities. Instead of just the tyranny of the majority plus one, you, know, you have supermajorities, and supermajorities mean that the, the vast majority of America is on board with whatever piece of legislation you're trying to push through. It makes it much harder to pass legislation, but of course he also reasoned that the states, as 
what we often call the laboratories of democracy and those other things, would continue to function and do stuff that was necessary for the states. The states would do things that were needed domestically, and they wouldn't have to rely on the United States. So, all that said, I want to talk about the Confederate Constitution. Marshall DeRosa, several years ago, almost a decade ago, at one of our summer schools, did two talks on the Confederate Constitution. If you've never read his book, the, the Confederate Constitution of 1861, you need to do that. It is the only book on the topic really out there that's uh, scholarly on this subject. He was working on a book on Confederate case law, which I think has been scrapped. I don't know what happened with that, but um, it was a very interesting idea to go out and look at Confederate case law because what you find when you start looking at Confederate case law is pretty interesting. Well, because you get this, this of course, these uh, you know charges made against the South. They didn't consider slaves to be people. Well, if you look at Confederate case law, that's completely untrue. Slaves are treated as people before the courts all the time. In fact, uh, they were uh, you know found not guilty quite often in courts. And DeRosa's position is that eventually the South would have had to have arrived at the position that uh, slaves were, were going to be freed because they were being denied some of their due process rights and other things because of their status in slavery. He thought that the courts would eventually have undone slavery in the South because of these decisions that were being made in the 1860s by Southern states. You see, these were not federal courts. The South didn't have a federal court system. It had state courts that worked as these kind of federal courts. But he thought, and he argues, that eventually this would have undone the entire system of slavery in the South. Over time, it would have happened. No matter what the Congress would have done, no matter what the states would have done, or any of that, the entire system would have been undone by courts. And we know this, this can happen, right? It happened in Massachusetts. It's exactly how Massachusetts abolished slavery. They didn't do it through legislative effort. They didn't do it through a constitutional amendment. They did it because a court decided that the Massachusetts Constitution did not allow slavery. And uh, even though it didn't explicitly say that, that's what they decided. So this is a really interesting issue and an interesting topic in the Confederate Constitution. What DeRosa says is that, you know, we should really pay attention to the Confederate Constitution as part of the American constitutional tradition. Now, we've done some material on the Confederate Constitution at the website. We've talked about it and the differences between the U.S. Constitution and the Confederate Constitution. One thing that DeRosa does, I think, very well in how he discusses the Confederate Constitution is highlight how the Confederate Constitution was a better expression of Americanism and why we should pay attention to it than what had happened with the U.S. Constitution. In other words, over time, as we've gone 80 years into the Federal Republic, Southerners had an opportunity to really see how the Confederate, how the U.S. Constitution worked, the defects in it, and they were able to try to make proposals to change it to make it better. Now, Jefferson Davis talked about this in his inaugural address that they had, you know, made some. They they kept the form of it, made some minor changes to improve it essentially, and they were still following the original Constitution. What they had done in making the changes to it was more in the letter and spirit of the original Constitution than what they had in the United States because they had codified these things. You see, they had worked with it. They had seen it in operation. They had looked at the originalist arguments, what we call originalism today, the ratification process, what the proponents of the documents had said. They had looked at all these things. They knew what they were. And out of that, 
they draft a constitution and ratify a constitution that puts those things into place. Now, one thing, of course, that DeRosa is clear on, not in this piece that we ran this week, but uh, something we've talked about before, and I've talked about it before on this podcast, is how there was really no difference in the U.S. Constitution, the Confederate Constitution, the powers of the general government in regard to slavery. It's often pointed out that in the Confederate Constitution, they use the words slavery and Negro slavery, and they do. They, they use those words explicitly. They are defining it in the Confederate Constitution. So people would say, well, there it is. It's a completely different document. But when it comes to the powers of the central government, there's no power of the central government in either case to abolish slavery. None. So when people say, well, you couldn't abolish slavery in the Confederacy. Well, you know what? You couldn't abolish slavery in the United States either. It was illegal. That's why we had the 13th Amendment, right? Lincoln knew it. He knew he couldn't abolish slavery in the United States. That's why you had to have a 13th Amendment. There was some discussion, of course, in the Confederacy by 1864, even earlier. Uh, we've talked about it on this program before, that uh, there, were some, there were some whispers around that the, that the South, the Confederacy, was willing to abolish slavery to get foreign recognition in the war effort. We know that Duncan Kenner had been sent to Europe by Jefferson Davis, and that was certainly on the agenda. If they could get the British or the French to recognize the Confederacy and help break the blockade, uh, that the Confederacy would promise to abolish slavery. And so certainly there were whispers about this. We know at the end of the war, of course, as a, as a war measure, right at the end, they were going to, and they did enlist some uh, black uh, Confederates to fight. And they were given the promise of freedom for doing it. We know that other military leaders had proposed this before. Look, we're running out of men. We need to get people in this, in this war effort or we're going to lose. It was you know, too little, too late in that way if it was going to turn the tide of war. But certainly they were open to it. This is the thing that people miss. They were open to it. They were open to ending slavery for independence. Independence was more important than anything else to the Confederacy. That's what people need to understand. Independence trumped anything. So when Lincoln made a proposal to come back in the Union... In January of 1865, the Hampton Roads Conference, Davis's response is no. There's no. There's no. We want. We'll, we'll stop fighting if you stop fighting us. But independence is not off. Is not on the table. Uh, I'm sorry. Our, removing our independence, right? Becoming part of the United States again, it's not on the table. We are independent. We're not coming back. So in order to keep them in, they had to coerce them militarily. And again, independence was more important to these people than anything else. So when you look at the Confederate Constitution, that part of it, you know, that, that the, um, the general government could not abolish slavery. Uh, even you know, people like Stephanie McCurry, a couple of years ago, she had made a point about one of the parts of the Confederate Constitution. It's, um, it's uh, in Article 1. And um, she said, well, you know, this, this clearly shows the Confederacy couldn't abolish slavery. And I said, well, wait a second here. You know, I, I questioned her about that on social media. And she admitted that, no, that, that was the case. It was just like the U.S. Constitution. Well, then why do you say this? And, of course, she had nothing really to say about that. She just had her little minions come out and try to argue. But, I mean, there's nothing to say. The states in the Confederacy could abolish slavery anytime they wanted to. Just like in the U.S. Constitution, the states could do it there too. There was no difference on this issue in the two constitutions other than the language used. They did explicitly state that, of course, you could sojourn with your slaves in a state that could not be denied, but the state itself could be a free state 
sojourning was not an extended amount of time in a state. You had to become a citizen at that point. So if you were there visiting, for example, if you were uh, from a slave state, let's say you were from Alabama and Virginia abolishes slavery. Well, in the capitals in Richmond, you could go to Richmond with your slaves and those slaves would not be declared free while they're in Virginia if you were there on business or there for the government or something like that. So certainly uh, there was that part of it. But that was what they thought was the case in the United States. They, they were arguing these things there too. So those issues were not any different. There were some major differences though. The explicit recognition of federalism at the beginning of the Confederate Constitution to state to put the Tenth Amendment into the document just as it was in the Articles of Confederation. This is what they thought was one of the great defects of, of course, the, the uh, U.S. Constitution, that they didn't do that. They didn't put, they, they had the Tenth Amendment as part of the Bill of Rights. They wanted it in the document itself. So they were really concerned about this, so they added it to the, uh, to the Constitution itself. They did all kinds of other really interesting things, of course, to uh, to uh, try to uh, codify this very federalist, with a lowercase f, vision of the Confederate states. So, for example, one of the things is that you had to have earmarks. Every bill that went before the Confederate Congress for spending had to be earmarked. It had to be explicitly stated what the money was going to be spent on. In other words, there's no more omnibus bills like we've seen in the U.S. Constitution over and over again. That's not there. This was an improvement on what they were getting in, uh, in the Confederacy compared to the United States. They thought it would stop reckless spending. That's a major improvement. You, of course, have prohibitions on federally funded internal improvements and protective tariffs. These are things that the Confederacy thought were a plague on the United States and that this kind of reckless spending, this kind of corporate welfare and other things was dangerous to the security of the United States, and then by default, then the Confederate States. We know that there were differences in the powers of the presidency and how long the president was in office. Six years non, uh, for non-re-election. You had a six-year term one time, and that was it. The president had a line-item veto. This is something that people tried to get in the 1990s during the Clinton administration. The Republicans passed it. It was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, and rightly so, because this would need a constitutional amendment to do it. But there was certainly there are some discussions about this. Now we have a, a basically a de facto line item veto. They're called signing statements. The president has signing statements. Well, I don't agree with this. And basically, I'm not going to do it. And it doesn't matter what you say. So we've gotten a line item veto without a line item veto. In other words, the Confederate Constitution made real improvements on American constitutionalism because of experience. And that's something we often miss in our misguided criticisms of the document because of slavery, right? And which again, should not really be even a major point of discussion because there was really no difference in the two documents. The slave trade was abolished, the international slave trade, you couldn't do that in the Confederacy. I mean, there's no difference on these issues. No difference except the language used. That was it. That was it. Um, which I find fascinating when people make these arguments that you know there's some kind of major difference in the Confederacy and the United States in terms of slavery. Nothing. It was not there. They were simply putting into language what they understood the U.S. Constitution to mean. That's it. Um, this is the same thing I started this podcast with John C. Calhoun. And you look at Calhoun's positive good speech. 
And so we skip over all the things that Calhoun had uh, said about American government and republicanism and all this stuff, all these things that Calhoun had said throughout his life that have currency in modern America. We forget about John C. Calhoun, well, because of slavery and the 1837 positive good speech. Now, we have two articles on the Abbeville website about that, both by Clyde Wilson, the positive good, what he said and what he didn't say. And um, what's really important to note about the positive good speech is that Calhoun really wasn't saying anything unique or um, you know, earth-shattering in 1837. This was unoriginal. In fact, people have been saying these things for nearly 200 years by the time, in the United States, or what became the United States, by the time that Calhoun said it, 130 years or so, by the time Calhoun said these things. There's a really interesting book on this, Larry Ties' Pro-Slavery, where he talks about northern pro-slavery arguments. And the first documented pro-slavery argument in the United States is by a man named John Saffin in Massachusetts in around 1701. So by the time Calhoun, and the, the arguments are almost the exact same arguments Calhoun made in 1837. So by the time Calhoun says these things in 1837, you know, 136 years later, people had heard these things before, even in the South, in the North. It was kind of a faux outrage that people stood up and said, oh, I've never heard this before. You've changed the entire argument. No, he hadn't. These are things that have been said for years. And lots of different places. And so, north and south. And so, this part of Calhoun's quote-unquote political philosophy was not even really part of his political philosophy. He was just stating what he thought was a truism uh, based on the same arguments that people had made, particularly theologians had made, in New England for a century. Remember, Calhoun was actually instructed in New England at Yale. He went to Yale College. And you had people like you know, Timothy uh, Dwight there. And uh, Dwight was uh, certainly um, you know, pro-slavery, though he saw it kind of a necessary evil. And if you look at what Calhoun actually says about the positive good, he's still calling it a necessary evil with, evil with a sort of a modification. He doesn't say it's an evil. He says, you know, it's a good. But the necessary evil argument was also to the point of, well, we know that slavery isn't necessarily a, a great institution um, ideologically. Uh, we, we, you know, from the big picture, it's not really a great institution. But what it provides here is X, Y, and Z. That's the same thing Calhoun said. He didn't talk about slavery as a positive good in the abstract. He talked about it in his mind as a positive good in the United States as it existed at that time. So we can, of course, disagree with him on this. But that's what the point that Calhoun was making. It was a modified version of the necessary evil, a point that people had made throughout, uh, throughout you know, decades in America, even in the North. So when you look at these two things and put them together, Calhoun and the distortion of Calhoun, the Confederate Constitution, the distortion of the Confederate Constitution, why? Why are these things done? Why is it that Calhoun becomes the American Hitler, which is essentially what the left, and even some neoconservatives like to say, the Straussians, why is Calhoun that? And the Confederate Constitution is nothing but slavery. Why would they do that? Well, I think the answer is pretty clear and pretty obvious if you just think about it logically. Both of these things, Calhoun's positions on government and society, but more government than anything else, his concurrent majority, his arguments against centralized power, his arguments against an imperial presidency, his arguments against corruption, all of these things 
throw a real wrench into the modern Leviathan in Washington, D.C. They create problems for that entity. If people listen to Calhoun, if people listen to what Calhoun said about government, if they listen to what he said about uh, good government and the United States Constitution, you would have a lot more attention paid to the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. Also, if you read the Confederate Constitution and you pulled out of it what it really was, was an upgrade to the U.S. Constitution in terms of the powers of the central government. It explicitly stated things that needed to be said, right? People have often said, well, the Confederacy was pro-secession, but they didn't talk about secession in their Constitution. They didn't allow states to do it. That's because you didn't need to allow a state to do something that was a reserved power. The whole argument would be blown apart if you said, well, it has to be in the Constitution. They were, their argument was, it's not in the Constitution, so the states can do whatever they want. States could secede from the Confederacy, just like they could secede from the United States. The Confederacy would recognize that. You see, that's the whole point. Uh, but, you know, when you look at the Confederacy, it was thought, in, in their minds anyways, it was an upgrade on the things they were doing in that document compared to the U.S. Constitution. For example, the federal court system, it was never established. They could have a Supreme Court, but they never put it into effect, ever. It was never created by the Confederate Congress. So the, the state courts acted as these same kind of courts. I mean, the, and the courts still functioned. We still had a functioning legal system in the Confederacy, as Marshall DeRosa has found in all of his work on Confederate case law. It still worked. It was still there. It's not like they didn't have courts. We seem to think if we don't have federal something, we don't have courts. We don't have a government. We don't have these things. Of course, all that, again, is misguided because we should be looking at the states. And the Confederacy looked at the states. So we had an upgrade, in their mind, an upgrade on American constitutionalism. And in Marshall DeRosa's talk back in 2014, there's two parts. We'll only put the first part up. He basically gets into that. He says, look, You've got this European Union. You've got these things going on. This is 2014, so you know, it's almost a decade ago. We hadn't had Brexit or anything there. And, uh, but you look at this kind of European uh, Union and what's happening in Europe and what's happening with international law and world government and all these things. The Confederacy offered a counterweight to that back in the 1860s. The Confederacy offered a counterweight to the U.S. Constitution. Why would the Confederacy be dangerous to centralized or to Washington D.C. because it's dangerous to centralized power? Because it 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 it's a nice example of decentralization in action. The South seceded; they were gone. They left the Union, and because of that, that's a threat to Washington D.C. You have to denounce what you don't like. And they don't like Calhoun because he's a threat to centralized power in D.C. They don't like the Confederacy or the Confederate Constitution because it's a threat to centralized power in D.C. That's the real issue. More than anything else, that's it. And they come up with all these reasons not to like it. Well, because it's got slavery. And Calhoun said something about slavery. You can go back and find all kinds of people that said stuff about slavery. All these things. The Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions, another example of that. That's a threat to centralize power in Washington, D.C. It's a threat to the establishment. It's, it's a threat to the regime. It's a threat, as we called it during the Trump administration, it's a threat to the swamp. It's a threat to them. And when you have that kind of threat, they have to come up with a way to denounce it, 
to make it to where nobody would even listen to it. And how do you do that in the modern era? Well, you start saying things like race or slavery. And, and of course, people are going to be immediately turned off by that. And look, I get it. I mean, one thing you have to, as you study American history, you have to you know, start parsing these things out. I get it. I get the, the, the disgust that you have with slavery. I understand it. Uh, no one wants to live in the antebellum South with that kind of labor system. It's bad. Nobody wants that. But you can put that aside and look at the other parts of Southern society that were certainly uh, a nice critique on what's happening in modern America. Again, the critique of centralized power, of banking, of finance, of the imperial presidency, of imperialism in general. These are important things. Calhoun was against the war with Mexico, for example. He thought it was a bad idea. He thought it would expand the powers of the presidency. He was all in favor of the War of 1812 because the United States was being abused by the British. But he was not so certain about other uh, adventurism, other parts of war. And um, the Robert uh, Elder book on Calhoun, American Heretic, actually does a pretty good job with Calhoun's time and as Secretary of War. But also, you know, is a really good job with that, of course, is Clyde Wilson. And uh, Clyde Wilson, in his introductions to the Calhoun Papers, is just amazing on that topic. But um, these are really important things that we need to ensure that people get. And it's why the Abbeville Institute exists. We want to be the counterweight to that. We want to show people these are the things that are important about the South and the Southern tradition. These are the things that are true and valuable in the Southern tradition. And Calhoun is a valuable part of the American political tradition. More than a lot of other people that get a lot more credit for doing things that are really stupid. Calhoun was a valuable part of that. The Confederate States Constitution was a valuable expression of where people were, conservatives, in the 1860s on the powers of the central government. It is a nice expression of what these people thought about centralization corporate welfare, high taxes, the powers of the presidency, the powers of the judicial branch, the powers of Congress, all these things were on the table, which is why when you look at this stuff, these are really nice historical documents to try to understand where Americans were and what they were thinking about powers of the central authority and the powers of the central government vis-a-vis um, -vis the states, for example. Um, these are really important things to get, which is why we continually talk about them at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day.